Hello, and welcome again to the Expanding Eyes podcast, in which we have been, for some weeks now, discussing Milton's Paradise Lost. It is always enjoyable for me to talk about Milton. And we have reached the point in Paradise Lost of Book 4, in which we get our first look at the protagonist's of the poem, Adam and Eve. This delayed introduction of the hero and heroine is no doubt, I'm sure, modeled on the Odyssey where we don't meet Odysseus, the hero of his own epic until book five. And here we do not see Adam and Eve until book four and then with an additional ingenious ironic touch Milton contrives that we get our first look more or less through the eyes of Satan, their mortal enemy, because we have been following him in his more or less tourist sightseeing tour through the Garden of Eden, which is new to him. In fact, it's new to everybody. It's just been created. And he wends his way through looking at things, and it's as if, by our terms, used to television and movie cameras, as if we follow the camera, so to speak, through the garden until we finally meet the two inhabitants of the garden. And the movie analogy, the camera analogy, actually continues briefly because the first description of Adam and Eve is of their exterior appearance. And it is at that moment that the poem runs into controversy, which we had begun to talk about last time. Milton, as always, is stuck in a poem whose whole purpose is to justify the ways of God to men, the famous opening line, But that means dealing with some of the hard issues of Christian doctrine. And Milton cannot, given the purpose of the poem, simply avoid them and sweep them under the carpet because, okay, this is the whole point of the poem, to deal with the issues and justify. Therefore, he cannot stay out of trouble, so to speak. He has to state the doctrine, and the doctrine here as regards male-female relationships and power and sexuality is by our standards sexist and patriarchal, and there is simply no way of getting around that. It is part of the text. My point is that it's only part of the text, and even so, Milton is doing, and this needs to be recognized, not to just try to get him out of trouble, but out of correct thinking about what's really being said, accurate interpretation, not just trying to get the guy out of trouble. What Milton is doing is what he always does. He starts with the distinction between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And he leans as hard 
on the spirit of the law rather than the letter, as he could possibly perhaps have done in the time he was living in. There were a few fringe figures on the far left wing of Protestantism that were as radical or even more than Milton, but they were exactly that, a fringe. They were disregarded and so forth. In order to be mainstream at all, Milton is stuck with at least some semblance of the letter of the law. There were, as I say, a few people, famous, fascinating figure named Gerard Winstanley, for example, who simply read scripture entirely symbolically and not literally at all. But that kind of attitude would not really come into its own until at least the romantics like Blake in the 19th century. And even now, that is not something that Christians automatically accept. So Milton starts with the letter and immediately in our first description of Adam and Eve, he baldly states the letter of the law, though he will go on to try to say, now what does this look like in the view of the spirit of the law? But this is the letter of the law and this passage is by our standards simply almost off-puttingly sexist. Adam and Eve are not equal as their sex not equal seemed. For contemplation he and valor formed, for softness she and sweet attractive grace. He for God only, she for God in him. His fair large front and eye sublime declared absolute rule. And somewhere right about there, the modern part of our consciousness is saying, yuck. And that's as it is. That is simply a bald statement of the doctrine of the time. And where does it come from? It's not simply made up by a bunch of church fathers. As I pointed out last time, he for God only, she for God in him, is a paraphrase of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He is simply stating what is not just in church ideology, but to some degree at least in the Bible itself. What are you going to do about it? But we need to go on past there. We left off there last time, but there is much more here and much more to trouble and yet much more to dig more deeply into. That passage goes on to contrast the manly good looks of Adam with Eve in a description that you see quoted in ways which indicate that the people quoting it are clearly rather horrified by it because it seems to reduce Eve to some sort of baby doll sex object because it stresses her feminine ornaments. A passage like 
She as a veil down to the slender waist, her unadorned golden tresses wore disheveled, but in wanton ringlets waved as the vine curls her tendrils, which implied subjection, but required with gentle sway, and by her yielded, by him best received, yielded with coy submission, modest pride, and sweet, reluctant, amorous delay. Okay, what is going on there? One thing that is going on there, we will go back to the subjection stuff in a moment, but one thing that is going on there, in addition to that, and we do need to try to separate this into what we can accept, what we can reinterpret, and what we simply have to reject, and there's going to be some of all three. The good part, you might say, is the attempt of which that is one passage of Milton making a very bold attempt here and elsewhere to be in modern lingo sex positive. And we should not minimize the radical boldness of Milton's affirmation of human sexuality, including female sexuality, as a good thing, as a thing that is not sinful, at least under circumstances like the present of a monogamously married couple. And uh, the passage goes on to explicitly talk about this in the most physical terms. Not only is sexuality and desire affirmative, but the human body sexually is also affirmative. And I can't stress too much how this was not how it was looked at for the most part in Milton's time. Nor those mysterious parts were then concealed. Then was not guilty shame, dishonest shame of nature's works, honor dishonorable, sin-bred, how have you troubled all mankind with shows instead, mere shows of seeming pure, and banished from man's life his happiest life, simplicity and spotless innocence. Sex is good. And it is the fall which produced all of the bad elements of sexuality. And it, even the fall, as we will find, has not totally corrupted the goodness. Later, when Adam and Eve go to bed at night, towards the end of book four, we get this passage around line 741. They go to bed, nor turned I ween Adam from his fair spouse, nor Eve the rites mysterious of connubial love refused. Whatever hypocrites austerely talk of purity and place and innocence, defaming as impure what God declaims, declares pure and commands to some, leaves free to all. 
Our maker bids increase. Who bids abstain but our destroyer? Foe to God and man. Hail, wedded love, mysterious law, true source of human offspring. Sole propriety in paradise of all things common else. By thee, adulterous lust was driven from men among the bestial herds to reigns. Hail, wedded love, and by love there, he means sex. It is an extraordinary passage. It no doubt scandalized some of the fellow Puritans, because after all, the word Puritan has come down to us synonymous with prudish about sex, puritanical. However, this is not just a Protestant neurotic thing. The Puritans and their negative attitude towards sexuality and desire were returning to the source of all that guilt about sex, which was largely St. Augustine in the medieval Catholic tradition. And yes, I add in passing, I grew up Roman Catholic before Vatican II. And let me tell you, the heritage of St. Augustine's attitude was still in force in the early 1960s, whatever may be true now. In Augustine, sex was a necessary evil. It was a product, as we know it, of the fall. The problem with sexuality to Augustine, the fallen aspect of it, was desire. Sex is for reproduction, but the problem is, uh, well, <clears throat> no desire, no reproduction. That's how it works. Which is exactly what Augustine deplored. He literally said, not exaggerating, but his exact way of speaking of this is that if the human race had not fallen, we would have reproduced through will alone rather than desire. Now we are trapped in having to summon up this demon of desire in order to get the job of reproduction done. But in an unfallen human race, it would be presumably like blowing your nose, just something to, you decide to do, you do it, it's over, it accomplished its task, we, we go about our business. If you read Augustine's Confessions, perhaps the first great autobiography in the Western world, and one of great psychological penetration, you learn that whatever, as I made a case for Milton's personal life informing his own intellectual attitudes about marriage and divorce and so on, you learn that Augustine in his negative attitudes, which had a tremendous influence for almost 2,000 years about sexuality, you learned that he, as a young man, was very troubled. Christianity saved him from being basically an out-of-control young man, and the thing that was most out-of-control when he was a young man was sexual desire. 
which, as we jokingly but truly say, it has a mind of its own. It shouldn't. It should be subject to the rational human will. <laughs> it's not. Which shows that it's fallen. Milton is in the teeth of all that. And we should not simply pass too easily over what he is trying to do here. That sexuality is positive under the right circumstances, yes. And within that, sexuality means desire. And what that means is in any relationship, this is not, in my opinion, confined to a heterosexual norm. Whatever the genders of the partners involved, there is self and there is other. And the self looks at the other with a combination, possibly, of desire, in other words, a movement towards, and fear and vulnerability. This is another, not subject to my will, unknown, and therefore, I could get hurt. That is the dynamics of any relationship. As I say, gender seems to me strictly secondary here. That's what we're always stuck with. That's how it is. And because of that, there's always a desire versus power dynamic involved in relationships. Some people say that should not be true, but I think the fact that two people are, or at least begin, as other to each other, if you follow me, means that that has to be negotiated in some sort of a loving and humane way. But that may involve certain games among people who trust each other, little games of dominance and surrender. And if we go back to some of that wording, that is, I think, as I read it, what Milton is implying, okay, this business of female submission and male patriarchy and women having wanton ringlets and, you know, subjection, but required with gentle sway and sweet, reluctant, amorous delay. That's iambic pentameter for flirting. In other words, Milton is saying, couples, not just in bad relationships, but in good relationships, play little games with each other. And power and surrender have their role in that. That is, to me, perhaps I should build this as my personal way of looking at it, a personal way of interpreting Milton, what Milton is saying here, the exact wording, but that is how I read this passage. Milton, this man has been around the block three times. He's had three lives, wives, and he knows about relating to women. He knows the bad parts of it. He knows also the good parts of it. 
and we will get to some of the even better parts, you might say. Sex under good circumstances is to Milton one of the good parts, and yes, little games get played. And therefore, yielded with coy submission, modest pride, the woman is not just being walked on. Milton does not believe in that, whatever the doctrine says. And I point out here what we will not meet until Book Nine, The Fall Itself. Adam does not order Eve around this absolute rule thing. You have to be careful. Milton says one thing in one place because he has to state the doctrine, the party line. Then he does something else later. They have been warned in Book 9 by an angel. Don't separate. It's dangerous. You have an enemy lurking. Eve wants to go off by herself. She insists. She insists for pages. Adam is ready to pull his hair out. He's totally exasperated with her. But it's either simply forbid her you're going to do it because I say you're going to do it. Or you're going to let her go saying, this is a bad idea, but I am not going to just rule over you. He lets her go off, telling her, this is wrong, this is terrible. He does not order her. And whatever... The angel may say later, when Adam gets upbraided, I think it's pretty clear that that's what Milton believed. You don't order women around, even when they're driving you crazy, as she was. That's even before the fall. Relationships are hard sometimes. At any rate, there's that in it, too. And... Then there is the additional issue, in addition to the erotic component and the rule and submission component, there is the narcissism motif, so to speak. A few pages onward from what I've been quoting, Eve tells Adam the story of her consciousness her coming to consciousness after she was created out of Adam's rib. Things are told out of order. We will only see that creation of Eve later in uh, the mouth of Adam. It's recounted. But we get Eve coming to consciousness. Milton is amazing in imagining in an almost science fictional way what would it be like to be created and come into a moment of consciousness instead of being born and growing up as a baby like the human race ever since. And he describes that out of Eve's mouth in book four. And once again, you get the sexist ideological superstructure, but then the spirit of the law, psychological wisdom buried in it. And you get both. There's no absolving past a point. On the other hand, there is so much of a wealth of insight 
at the same time. It makes, to me, Milton fascinating. He's struggling to come to terms with it all. Eve describes her coming to consciousness in a way that, again, we have to look forward in the narrative, is contrasted, though we don't realize this until later, with what happens to Adam when he comes to consciousness. When he, as we will see, first awakens after being created by God, he springs upright and looks towards the sun. And we've already seen the vertical upward imagery of the sun in Paradise Lost. And that's the male gaze looking upwards towards the source of authority and reason and all that stuff. Eve, here, goes to the water and looks down and sees her own image in the water in a way that clearly is evocative of the story of Narcissus, who fell in love with his own image in the water in Ovid's Metamorphoses, and therefore gave the Freud the term for narcissism, the excessive self-love. Narcissus could not love the nymph named Echo because he was too busy being in love with his own image in the water. Eve looks down, and remember, this woman has been awake for five minutes. She knows nothing, and sees a shape and doesn't realize it's her own reflection. And she likes that shape. It's pretty attractive looking. Then she comes upon Adam, looks at Adam, and says, well, fair indeed and tall. This is around line 477 or so. And then in what I always find a hilarious moment, but less winning soft, less amiably mild than that smooth watery image, back I turned. Thou following criedst aloud, return fair Eve, where fliest thou? Yeah, you're, you're okay, but I prefer that other one over there back in the water. I'm going back there. And Adam is going, wait, wait. It's, I think Milton's totally intends this to be funny. Yes, there's a little sting in the tail, a bit of doctrine that woman's narcissism gets her in trouble. Women are conditioned to be mindful of their appearance. You know, read some of the less amiable passages of Freud about female narcissism. But still, that narcissism, again, we have to read the whole text, and we're not there yet. It will take us some time. And sometimes I jump ahead and plug things in so that we can think about them. Here, it is true that Eve's narcissism will turn out to be a weak point. It will be the weak point through which Satan operates. Always he appeals to her vanity, to her narcissistic tendencies. And yet, at the same time, as we will see, Eve has an independent-mindedness that makes her at moments 
more attractive to us or more admirable to us than Adam, who gets chewed out later by an angel for what we would call codependency. Adam has the opposite. He has a feeling of emotional dependency on Eve, which her narcissistic self-regard exacerbates in him. The more self-absorbed she is, the more he admires her as a kind of inaccessible object. And boy, does he get chewed out for that one. But again, human psychology, whether it ought to go that way or not, and whether it needs to go that way or not, how often in life is that kind of dynamic between any relationship partners. If you read Thomas Mann's Death in Venice, for example, it is the relationship of an older man, a writer, Aschenbach, for a beautiful young boy, which in turn echoes the situation in the first set of Shakespeare's sonnets, where there is an older poet and a beautiful youth who is clearly stuck on himself, clearly narcissistic in the sonnets, and that only increases the narrator's desire. So gender has nothing to do with a particular type of sexist psychological dynamic going on here, but it is a dynamic, and it is true to life, whether it should be or not. Milton is not just a patriarch spouting dogma. He is trying desperately, and not always perhaps successfully, to reconcile dogma with a more humane way of looking at it, the spirit of the law, and with his own emotional encounters in multiple relationships. It is a rich mix, and we can learn a lot by thinking about it. But there's one more component. There is, in addition to all of the erotic and the power dynamics, Milton recognized, and this is the best of Milton to me. All of that is there, and it can be good or it can lead to hell on earth. But more important in the end, in a true love relationship, is companionship. Yeah, the sex and desire stuff and all of that makes the world go round. But again, we should keep in mind, as we see the later career of Adam and Eve, that Milton understands that and is unable, perhaps, to totally reconcile this with his knowledge of the patriarchal law. Around line 637, Eve herself states the law, literally. Unargued I obey, so God ordains. God is thy law, thou mine, repeating that thing from Paul. To know no more is woman's happiest knowledge and her praise. Yuck, we say. That's the, the law at its worst. And then suddenly, with no, 
no transition, she launches into this. And what you have to realize, and the poem gives no indication, it does not set this off, but it, she launches into a lyric poem about the real basis of her relationship with Adam, which is summed up in the word conversation, a word that means back and forth. It's a beautiful poem, and if you analyze it, you realize it's a daring technical lyric. It's an offset lyric, which instead of rhyme, repeats a set of key words. As I read it, because it will make a nice ending to this episode, you can listen to the repeated words, sweet, sun, flower, night, and moon. Said once in the first half of the poem and then mirrored by their repetition in the second half. It, it's a mirror, the poem is a mirror of two halves of the lyric that mirror the conversation, the back and forth. This is a beautiful, beautiful love poem based not on eros and desire, but on I like to talk to you. With thee conversing, I forget all time, all seasons and their change, all please alike. Sweet is the breath of morn, her rising sweet, with charm of earliest birds. Pleasant the sun, when first on this delightful land he spreads his orient beams on herb, tree, fruit, and flower, glistering with dew. Fragrant the fertile earth after soft showers, and sweet the coming on of grateful evening, mild and then silent night. With this her solemn bird and this fair moon, and these the gems of heaven, her starry train. But neither breath of morn when she ascends with charm of earliest birds, nor rising sun on this delightful land, nor herb, fruit, flower, glistering with dew, nor fragrance after showers, nor grateful evening mild, nor silent night, with this her solemn bird, nor walk by moon or glittering starlight, without thee is sweet. None of it is sweet without thee. If a woman ever said that to me, I would be simply overwhelmed. That is love. And Milton knows it. We'll go on next time.